Good evening, everyone. A very warm welcome to all of you. Uh, my name is Sandra Jovcelovic. I'm a professor of social psychology here in the Department of Psychology and Behavioral Science uh, of LSC, and I am really delighted to be chairing our event this evening. And before I introduce our speakers, I just would like to say a few words to contextualize the film we're about to see and the format of the event. Shock Room uh, is the work of writer, filmmaker, and dramaturg Catherine Miller, a professor of screen and creative arts at Macquarie University in Sydney. The film is a restaging and to some extent a reinterpretation of the experimental study on obedience to authority conducted by social psychologist Stanley Milgram at the University of Yale in the 1960s. Milgram's research sought to understand under which conditions a person will obey or disobey authority, a problem that was made urgent by the political and moral devastation that followed the Second World War and also contested by a report on the banality of evil that was written by political philosopher Hannah Arendt when she covered the trial of Adolf, Adolf Eichmann in Jerusalem for the New Yorker in 1961. In her report, Arendt elaborated on the notion that evil is actually banal. It is not something carried out by a monster, a demon-like, devil-like character, but a form of behavior that occurs when people, just like you and me, stop thinking. Because following orders and obeying is the most important thing to do. Now, obeying, as defined by Stanley Milgram, is the psychological mechanism that links our individual action to political aims. It is this kind of motivational cement that binds ordinary people, just like us, to systems of authority. So this ordinary, ordinary very ordinary quality uh, that belongs to obedience was precisely what Hannah Arendt identified as the trouble with Eichmann. Not his trouble, but our trouble. The trouble with Eichmann, she wrote, was precisely that so many were just like him and that the, this many were neither perverted nor sadistic. They, they were just still terrifyingly and terrifically normal, terribly, terribly normal. So in Shock Room, Millard contends that Milgram's experiments is a very rich source of insights about the conditions under which people not only obey, but also resists what their consciousness tells them to do. In fact, Milgram's experiments were as much as laboratory uh, work as a very intense and actually terrifying drama. 
And the film, as you will see, captures precisely this very dramatic element of the moral, psychological, and political dimensions embedded in those situations in which we are asked to obey orders, even if they violate our consciousness. So with me to discuss these issues in the film are two wonderful authors, Professor Patrick Flannery and Professor Steve Riker, each with, I think, a unique perspective to bring onto the problem. Patrick is Professor of Creative Writing at the University of Reading, and his fictional work has been widely acclaimed. His last novel, uh, I Am No One, is a very subtle exploration of unfocused, ordinary guilt as new technologies of surveillance and visibility expose and challenge our private lives. Patrick will be signing copies of his book uh, after the movie, so everyone is invited to join us later. Steve uh, is a very good friend of our, our department here at the LSE, is professor of social psychology at the University of St. Andrews, and his research focuses on the psychology of group processes, including leadership, crowd behavior, and tyranny. He's a major voice uh, in psychological debates related to issues of conformity, obedience, and rebellion. So uh, the way we're going to organize the event is that we're going to start now with the screening, the projection of the film. We're going to follow this with commentaries, brief commentaries by Patrick and Steve, and then we'll open uh, the debate and take questions from you. Thank you. Great. Okay, well, uh, so I'm sure you all have a question or two. Uh, or a comment or two after um, having seen the movie. Before we open to the audience to comments and questions, we won't have that much time. We're going to listen to Patrick and Steve producing a brief commentary on the film. So please, Patrick. Do you mind if I stay here? Not at all. Okay. So um, let me preface what I say um, by acknowledging that I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a trained psychologist, so I'm coming at this from a very different kind of perspective. Um, and I guess one which is, to a certain extent, taking Milgram's work at face value rather than interrogating um, how it may be perceived now. I'm happy to discuss that <laughs> rigorously afterwards. So two years ago, during a tour of South African secondary schools studying my first novel, Absolution, which is concerned in part with the individual's complicity in the regimes of apartheid and collective white guilt. A student in a suburban school in a gated community outside of Johannesburg stood up in the crowd of 1,500 students and teachers and asked me why she and her parents should feel guilty for what happened under apartheid. My parents were just obeying the law, she said. They were just following the rules. Why should we feel guilty about that? This question was repeated in different ways in different schools, but was voiced most frequently in schools that served a predominantly white student body, and in particular in ones located in gated communities, where all services are provided within a bubble of whiteness. In the case of the student I've described, I dodged the question, suggesting 
that my book was trying to think about the psychological effects of being awoken to one's own complicity, to one's guilt in historical crimes and participation in hierarchies of violence. I did not mention Hannah Arendt or the banality of evil, of people just following rules and obeying the laws without registering that those rules and laws were themselves the structuring apparatus of evil and obedience to them the mechanism by which the apartheid regime was able to maintain its control and exercise its fatal power. In the preface to his study, Obedience to Authority, Stanley Milgram writes, quote, Obedience is the psychological mechanism that links individual action to political purpose. It is the dispositional cement that binds people to systems of authority. Facts of recent history and observation in daily life suggest that for many people, obedience may be a deeply ingrained behavior tendency, indeed a prepotent impulse overriding training in ethics, sympathy, and moral conduct, end quote. Those men and women who were just following the rules under apartheid were also, it is fair to say, often very devout Protestant Christians whose sense of moral conduct, ethics, and sympathy was nonetheless subordinated to their urge, perhaps even compulsion, to obey. Milgram says elsewhere in his preface, quote, ordinary people simply doing their jobs and without any particular hostility on their part can become agents in a terrible destructive process. Moreover, even when the destructive effects of their work become patently clear and they are asked to carry out actions incompatible with fundamental standards of morality, relatively few people have the resources needed to resist authority. A variety of inhibitions against disobeying authority come into play and successfully keep the person in his place, end quote. In the past weeks, the relevance it seems to me, of Milgram's work seems newly and horribly apparent. One need only think of the border guards enforcing an executive order to ban the entry of refugees and anyone from seven predominantly Muslim countries or read what seem like daily occurrences of brutal behavior by those policing the U.S. border to know that we are again seeing the violent effects of that impulse to obey, I would suggest. Just today, I've read about immigration authorities in Florida detaining U.S.-born Muhammad Ali Jr. for hours, demanding to know if he is a Muslim. At Los Angeles International Airport, immigration authorities interrogated best-selling Australian children's author Mem Fox for two hours after incorrectly concluding she was traveling on the wrong visa. The interrogation was so aggressive that Fox doubts she will ever return to the U.S. after having made some 116 trips previously. She said, I am old and white, innocent and educated, and I speak English fluently. Imagine what happened to the others in the room, including an old Iranian woman in her 80s in a wheelchair. Milgram insists that, quote, this type of thing is constantly recurring. Ordinary citizens are ordered to destroy other people. We might say, in the case of what, what has been happening in the U.S. in the past months, brutalize rather than destroy, although an argument can clearly be made that denying entry to refugees will undoubtedly destroy many individual lives, and another argument can be made that cultures of obedience are intrinsic to the violent policing of black communities in America, which has resulted in unarguable destruction of life over the course of decades. These ordinary citizens do what they do, Milgram continues, quote, because they consider it their duty to obey orders, even when such orders serve a malevolent cause. Doing one's duty, he says, is a fundamental mode of thinking for a great many people once they are locked into a subordinate position in a structure of authority. The disappearance of a sense of responsibility is the most far-reaching consequence of submission to authority, end quote. I am just following orders. 
the self-justifying reasoning goes. I am not responsible for the actions I undertake because I am compelled by the authorities to do what I do. I'm interested in how we find ourselves again in a place where these phenomena seem to be repeated. Milgram suggests that the operation of this violent obedience can be activated by something as simple as, quote, a few changes in newspaper headlines or orders from a man with epaulettes. Or here we might say the relentlessly aggressive, demonizing, and antagonistic tone of Fox News and Breitbart commentary and orders from a man with bouffant hair in a bad suit who tweets abuse at anyone who questions his authority. With acts of persuasion, the shifting tone of national discourse, the authoritarian issuing of orders, Milgram suggests, quote, moral factors can be shunted aside with relative ease. This happens, in other words, he says, through the calculated restructuring of the informational and social field by providing what today we might call alternative facts. Change the narrative. The last eight years have been a period of American carnage. Refugees are coming to take our jobs at best and destroy our culture and kill us all at worst, so the narratives run. And those inclined to obedience will fall in line, I would suggest. You can certainly argue that. (laughs) History tells us over and over again that the obedient are often in the majority, although the conclusion of that film would suggest otherwise even if that majority is comprised largely of the diffident who feel a sense of moral discomfort at the atrocities unfolding around them, often in their name, but are too afraid to disobey, to be caught in acts of disobedience. When there are systems of mass surveillance controlled by a government that is also issuing orders to destroy lives, the result, I want to suggest, is the brutal reinforcement of regimes of obedience. If you do not obey, you will be caught. You too will be punished, like the people I have ordered you to punish. My second and third books, um, Fallen Land and I Am No One, have both tried to think through and dramatize the expectation of obedience in the face of ever more intrusive and comprehensive systems of mass surveillance. For me, a key final element in all this is the devaluation of victims. Milgram writes of the ways in which a decade's worth of anti-Semitic propaganda, quote, prepared the German population to accept the destruction of the Jews Step by step, the Jews were excluded from the category of citizen and national, and finally were denied the status of human beings. Here, however, Milgram reaches a chilling conclusion, that this devaluation of victims is not an essential prerequisite for the perpetrators of violence. Those obedient, ordinary citizens carrying out orders that destroy lives to feel justified in committing atrocities against innocents. Instead, he concludes, the victim is often devalued by the perpetrator as a consequence of the perpetrators acting against the victim. The victim's punishment, quote, was made inevitable by his own deficiencies of intellect and character, and not necessarily by any pre-existing narrative that devalues her or him. I fear we are seeing the operation of this already, in the actions of border guards who detain and interrogate citizens trying to re-enter their own country, who brutalize child migrants and refugees, who do any number of horrible things that seem destined only to grow worse in character, scope, and scale. And this is not a problem unique to America. The vilification of migrants in Britain's tabloid press and the more general but no less insidious rhetoric against immigration coming from the government itself suggests that the ground here is already well prepared for ordinary citizens to destroy the lives of other ordinary citizens. All we are lacking for now is an easily definable authority giving the orders to do so.
Well, I'm going to be less pessimistic. Um, <laughs> after all, what, what a Saturday night. What a downer. Um, <laughs> Milgram's remembered for two things, as you probably all know. He's remembered for the science and he's remembered for the ethics. So I'm going to make a comment about the ethics and then about the science. It was interesting listening to you as you watched that film. So in many ways, you responded like some of the participants. You giggled as they giggle nervously. It's something awful that is going on, and yet they're in it, and what do they do about it? And as Alex and I watched the film being made, I remember particularly the young Asian woman. We watched it, and halfway through, we went up to uh, Catherine, the director, and said, look, Catherine, you've got to stop. She, she, she's in pain. You can't do it. And Catherine said, wait. She said, wait. So at the end of the study, we debrief all the participants in character to look at their understandings of what was going on. And again, this timid woman, this woman almost in tears, Alex and I thinking, what bastards we are. What right do we have to do this? And then we said, OK, now the study is finished and we're going to debrief you out of character. And this woman changed almost physically. Okay? She stood taller, she was confident, she spoke in a different voice. And so the power, I think, of this paradigm, and one of the things Catherine was trying to do is see not just can we use this to portray Milgram, but actually to explore and collect data on how people behave in these different situations. And indeed, we've published uh, in serious uh, high-status scientific journals that data. Okay? One thing I can assure you all of is that no actors were harmed in the making of this <laughs> film. And that's important. That is important, because what right do we have to call ourselves a discipline which is concerned with human welfare when we harm people in the course of our science? There are many disreputable histories, right up to the present, with the involvement of the American Psychological Association uh, with American acts of torture. Ethics do matter. But the science. Milgram doesn't stand alone. He stands in a tradition of work which was very powerful in the 1950s and 60s about conformity, a series of studies which seem to suggest that human beings are natural conformists. It was partly to do with the Holocaust. It was also actually partly to do with great fears about the Korean War uh, and brainwashing in the Korean War. And a lot of the research on social influence was funded by the U.S. military. But there was this notion that was given to us that human beings are natural conformists. And Alex and I weren't happy with that. We weren't happy with it scientifically. We weren't happy with it politically or morally. Because if you tell us, and at this point we make in the film, if you tell us we're natural conformists, we can't help it. There is no possibility of resistance. If you naturalize conformity... Well, actually, you undermine resistance because you tell people that other people won't resist, so what's the point of doing it on your own? You atomize people. You isolate people. Even if they believe themselves they don't agree with the system, you are giving them a meta-narrative which isolates them from others. And so we began in, a series, in our work over many years now looking at um, Zimbardo's uh, Stanford Prison Study. And again, when you look at Stanford's Prison Study, which we're told tells us that you put people into a role, you put the uniform of a guard on someone, they become an oppressor. Actually, that's not what happens. It's not what happens when you look closely to Zimbardo's own study. It certainly didn't happen in our own studies. And again, when you look closely at Milgram, the notion that everyone obeys is not true. Nonetheless, a lot of people do. 
When before the studies, Milgram asked a panel of psychiatrists, experts, the people who know, how many people will go all the way to 450 volts? They said about one in a thousand, the psychopaths. Well, 42% is 42% too high. So when it comes to the explanation, the banality of evil explanation, it's important to distinguish two elements of the banality of evil. One is the notion that people do not kill out of extreme motives. They're not sadists, they're not torturers, they're not monsters, they're not unlike us. They are people like us, and that's the truly terrifying thing. The notion that the enemy is not without but within the question for each of us to ask, would we do it? That aspect we do not question in any way at all. But there's another aspect of the banality of evil, and that's why they do it, and the notion is thoughtlessness, because they're not aware of what they do. You see, there's a great irony here. The reason why every single psychology student and many non-psychology students know about the Milgram studies is because of their drama. They've seen the films. And why is there drama? Why is there tension? As always with dramatic tension, it's because you're pulled between different poles. People are pulled between those different voices. They're listening and they're hearing and they're hurting because the victim is hurt, but still they think there is a greater good which impels them onwards. And we argue that those who do it know what they're doing, but ultimately believe it is the greater good. But there's one more point that I want to make. And I'm going to finish with this. One of our great concerns about the received story of Milgram's studies is that they banalise the notion of the banality of evil. They misrepresent Arendt. And Arendt is something very important to tell us. You see, when Milgram and Arendt seem to agree that the reason why people obey is through thoughtlessness it misses the fact that thoughtlessness means something very different to the psychologist and the philosopher. For the psychologist, it means unawareness. For Milgram, it's very simple. You're concentrating so much on the experimenter, you don't really notice that the victim is hurting. Well, as I say, his own studies, I think, disprove that. The historical record disproves that. Arendt means something very different by thoughtlessness. For her, it means reflexivity. It means knowing what you're doing, but being aware of the fact that others might not agree with it. She talks about being able to step outside yourself and look at your actions and question your actions. She knows perfectly well that Eichmann and his ilk knew that they were killing Jewish people. In fact, if you even look at the preface, we were talking about the fact we're both reading it at the moment, her Origins of Totalitarianism, fantastic book, a contemporary book, written a long time ago. She says, the German people knew that Jews were being killed. They weren't unaware of it. In her own book, Eichmann in Jerusalem, she says, just as I was relating in the film, that Eichmann knew that he was deporting Jews to their death and believed in it. The problem with Eichmann was not unawareness. It was lack of reflexivity. He didn't step outside himself and question what he was doing. He didn't think that others might think there was something wrong with killing so many people. And the critical issue then becomes, if we want to avoid people going to extremes, being able to undertake extreme acts in the name of doing good, the question is how do we encourage reflexivity? And this is where I 
bring in Trump because everybody brings in Trump nowadays. <laughs> to me, when you look at a totalitarian system, it is entirely to do with the notion of how we understand different and opposition. The whole Enlightenment ideal was that we are members of a common community and we go forward through discussion. I respect that you're a common member of my community and you may differ with me, but because we seek similar ends, it's by discussion and argument and disagreement that we move forward, that you embrace in the ideal, of course, the ideal is rarely reached, but you accept at least opposition. You have the notion of a loyal opposition. Once you create the notion that anybody who disagrees with you is not of the community, that anybody who doesn't take your point of view is an enemy of the people, then you make it almost impossible to take up a different stance. You make it impossible to step outside and listen and look in on what you're doing and ask, are we doing the right thing or not? Are we perhaps doing evil things? Now, already as I say these things, I'm sure in all your heads you are hearing what Trump says about every form of opposition. The judge who disagrees with him, un-American. The civil rights movement, not American. The media, not American. Anybody who disagrees with him is thrown outside the community. Difference is not something to be respected and engaged with. It's something to be obliterated with. And that, to me, is the true toxic nature of Trumpism. It manifests itself many ways. It manifests itself in the rejection of all sorts of people, but fundamentally it is totalitarian. It has the capacity of going to God knows what extremes in the future precisely because it denies our ability to take up a different position. It denies reflexivity. It makes us thoughtless. It potentially makes us into Eichmanns. And that's, I think, the important message from um, Arendt. But I also think it's the message that comes out of the studies that we did. Um, So I hope they have helped you to begin to think about some of these issues. Okay, we have... uh Still a few minutes for some questions from the floor. So, if there are any, I can see a hand here and <laughs> then there. I know that's true. <laughs> I, I, Can I ask you to be brief so yeah, that we can have it? I was thinking of uh, the um, uh, Harold Garfinkel's breaching experiments, um, if you're familiar with those, uh, around the same time. And um, the... Um, uh, the idea with those is that people can have their sense of reality so easily shaken uh, that they um, behave in a disorganized way and become anxious about it and so on. And I'm just wondering whether this sort of data shows not so much that people are compliant to authority, but just that you can very easily make people so confused uh, um, as to behave just as, as we saw. Is, is it really about authority, this, or is it about shaking people's sense of what's going on? Let me take another question, and then perhaps you can take this in together. Yes, here. Um, first of all, I'd like to thank you for what you said about ethics, because um, it was a little jarring for me to even you know, finish watching that film. But also this notion of reflexivity um, that you speak of. I wonder if it's whether 
when individuals are in situations that they don't perceive to have any kind of valence as, you know, this is evil or this is good, and then suddenly, I mean, we're, it's, it, it's exhausting for us to be self-reflexive all the time. I mean, we simply don't have the cognitive capacity to do so. But kind of forcing this, when you're in this ambiguous situation that perhaps this is evil, maybe this resistance to reflexivity that you get is because of people's positive self-identity. I mean, you don't want to step outside of yourself and see someone that's evil. So I just wanted to see what you thought about that. Okay. Okay, well, perhaps I can come at both questions by saying that one of the things that psychologists, and actually many outside psychologists, seem to assume that if you want to understand human behavior, look at what people think. So we have countless attempts to measure what people think. We have countless opinion polls. But increasingly, what seems to be important, at least to me, is not what we think, it's what we think that others think, right? what we call meta-representations. We never have meta-opinion polls. In fact, when you put that to pollsters, they scratch their heads and, and, and look at you with bemusement. So, for instance, I remember hearing a wonderful study which showed that before the, um, the, the Gulf War, most Americans were against the Gulf War. Most Americans believed that other Americans were for the Gulf War. And it was their belief about what others believed which governed whether they protested or not. And many techniques of dictators are to try and influence what you think that others think. So, for instance, the Nazi salute wasn't about making you think you were a Nazi. You could give a Nazi salute believing it was safer to give it, even if you didn't believe in it, than not to give it. But if you see somebody else give a Nazi salute, if you have these public signs, then what you do again is you atomize people. Right? And resistance and the techniques of resistance are as much about signifying uh, resistance as believing uh, and dissenting privately. Now, in some ways, that relates to your question about confusion. Because sometimes when I think of the um, uh, Milgram studies, I think of them in terms of epistemic matters, which is similar. Epistemic isolation and epistemic authority. You see, very often, you know, you're put in this strange situation. You're asked to use, do these odd things. Okay? You would look around. You'd ask, what should I do? How should I behave? What's right? What's wrong? But you're isolated. When you're isolated just with the experimenter, so he dominates you, then his definition of the situation, his definition, and we see it in the film, his de I always do this, I point at screens that aren't there. Um, well, the screen's there, but the film isn't there. You see him sort of assuring you, this guy's okay, don't worry, accept my authority. Right. That when you isolate people from other voices, such that yours is the only voice, then you can define uh, reality very strongly. Look what cults do. What a cult seeks to do is to become a total institution. So you're cut off from everybody else. You're cut off from your parents. You're cut off from your friends. You're cut off from your... You live in this total institution. Therefore, its epistemic view becomes the only view. And I think when you look at the variations of Milgram's conditions, intuitively he grasps many of these things. Intuitively, he understands the ways and the conditions under which the authority's definition of authority prevails, and conversely, the conditions under which it's not. So I think there is gold in them, thou hills, or in, 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 there's gold certainly in those variants of Milgram to begin to get us to understand the conditions 
when you identify with the cause whether you, where you accept the uh, definition of reality uh, which is imposed by the experimenter. I can't really speak to the, to the finer scientific points of those things, but I guess I'm interested in, um, I guess, the way these phenomena may be inflected or, or shifted by cultural and historical specificity and by ideological conditions mm-hmm. in any given moment mm-hmm. that um, we might see the results playing out. So you know, I, I think for me in this moment, it seems terribly plausible what, what, mm-hmm. what his work suggests because of my own intimate knowledge of um, sort of middle-class white America and, and the way that, um, I guess, ideo- ideologies of obedience and um, just sort of you know, not making waves often take over and, and can sort of move groups into very dangerous directions. But, but that's a critique of Milgram. That's mm. not agreeing with Milgram. Mm. If I can use an example, there's a wonderful study <laughs> by uh, Sunken Neitzel, and what he did is he uh, got hold of the secret recordings, which the British did, of German soldiers, both junior and senior soldiers during the Second World War. And he analyzes them. And these people don't know they're being recorded. And so they speak frankly. I mean, the first point is, yes, there is a norm of, ro- of loyalty within the German army. Yes, they obey because that's the right thing to do for them as soldiers. But that's not about a generic human process. Mm. That's about a specific norm associated with a particular group, Mm. which is a very different level of analysis, partly because it is more optimistic because it points to the specificities. The second thing that is wonderful about Neitzel, and I think is really valuable, is certainly the generals, they know they're going to be held to account. They know they're going to face war crimes tribunals. They begin to work up an excuse And they know this excuse will only work if they all agree to it. And the excuse is we were only obeying orders. It's a beautiful example of the politics of we were only obeying orders. It's not an explanation, it's an excuse. Mm -hmm. Yes, I will take take one more question here. Can you just wait a bit because people will not hear you without a microphone. Thank you. I just wondered if you guys had any thoughts on the members of Parliament voting to allow Brexit to go through despite campaigning for Remain, uh, despite inviting people to vote against that, and yet then they, when offered a vote, choose to obey the will of the public. Um, And if you see any parallels or what your thoughts are on that. Wow. We might have, uh, I think we have two minutes before you can address this question. It might be that we will have to address this question outside, you know, having a conversation. We'll carry on walking. Thank you. I'm very sorry. I can see some hands rising, but it's half past eight, and you've got to... Yes. I, I was just I was just going to say just before you go I was just going to say that you know as uh, it was mentioned this is the last event of the literary festival 
the school does this every year. It has a fantastic program of public lectures that are open and free to all. Carry on coming. Keep an eye on our website and come back next year. Thank you very much.